Hello and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday the 8th of July. I'm V Stevenson covering for our regular host, Ian Welsh. Ian recently spoke with James Eady, Group Sustainability Lead for Starches, Sweetness and Texturizers at Cargill, and Andrew Voisey, Head of Impact and Carbon at Soil Capital. They spoke about why both businesses and farmers are increasingly interested in the shift towards regenerative agriculture. First, though, is some sustainable business news. In the most important climate change case to come before the US Supreme Court in over a decade, the court voted six justices to three in favor of West Virginia, a major coal mining state, and 18 other mostly Republican-led states. The decision has restricted the powers of the Environmental Protection Agency to regulate carbon emissions from existing power plants, including coal-fired, under the 1970 Clean Air Act. The court argued that the EPA lacked the authority to limit emissions across whole states. This should stay in the remit of Congress. The ruling represents a blow to the Biden administration's plan to decarbonize by 2035 and could have further implications for government agencies beyond the EPA. The ruling could have knock-on effects, for instance, to limit the powers of the Securities and Exchange Commission, which is currently drafting a new rule requiring public companies to disclose their Scope 3 emissions. A national ban on 19 single-use plastics has come into effect in India this week. Brought in to combat worsening pollution, the ban includes straws, plastic cups and cutlery, confectionery wrapping, earbuds and ice cream sticks. A rapidly growing economy, India uses around 14 million tonnes of plastic annually, but lacks a comprehensive national system for waste management. The Modi government had initially planned to implement the ban in 2020, later postponing to give the industry more time to prepare. However, whilst plastic manufacturers are still appealing to the government for a further extension, FMCG companies including PepsiCo and Coca-Cola, as well as Indian companies Amol, Parleagro and Dabur, continue to lobby for the exemption of plastic straws. The EU, Côte d'Ivoire and Ghana, along with the cocoa sector, have announced an agreement to gear up efforts to make cocoa more sustainable. At the Sustainable Cocoa Initiative's high-level Cocoa Talks event, the parties jointly endorsed an Alliance on Sustainable Cocoa, a roadmap to improving the social, economic and environmental sustainability of cocoa production and trade. The agreement covers a set of concrete time-bound actions, aiming to halt deforestation and child labour whilst improving the living income for farmers in the cocoa supply chain of West Africa. The Alliance has also pledged to help cocoa-producing countries to prepare to implement future EU legislation on deforestation and mandatory corporate due diligence. The Sustainable Apparel Coalition, which includes 250 top fashion retailers, has paused its transparency programme, which uses the Hig Material Sustainability Index. This comes after the Norwegian Consumer Authority ruling that Norwegian outdoor brand Norona must stop using the index for external communication due to its often inaccurate data, which can then give false credence to sustainability claims around garments labelled with it. The NCA also warned that the H&M group should stop using the index on its product pages. Among the issues with the HIG index, according to the court as well as campaigners, are the outdated information it uses and limits to its methodology. The SAC has announced that it will be commissioning a third-party review of the HIG Index's data and methodology and will work directly with its programme partners to provide more accurate data. Ian Welsh recently talked to James Eady, Group's Sustainability Lead for Starches, Sweeteners and Texturizers at Cargill, and Andrew Voisey, Head of Impact and Carbon at Soil Capital. They discussed the drivers of regenerative agriculture for farmers and within the value chain, and the signifiers that can give some confidence that momentum is growing. James, why don't you start us off by giving us an outline to Cargill's operations in Europe? Many of you will know Cargill, one of the largest global agri-food businesses. We've got a significant footprint across Europe, whether it's sourcing directly from farmers, whether that's things like wheat and oilseed and sunflower. We take many of those agricultural crops, process them as well. 
into food ingredients as well, which we then sell onto the large food brands, whether it's producing animal feed, whether it's producing aqua feed, or even working with like poultry juices as well and into food service industry. A diverse business and a large footprint and uh, European farmers, etc., hugely important for us. And we're going to be talking a little bit about regenerative agriculture on this podcast. Andrew, why don't you give us a quick insight into the work of Soil Capital? So we are a regenerative agronomy firm founded nearly 10 years ago by a farmer and a business professional, recognising that improving soil health and all the good things that come with that can also improve profitability. But despite practicing that in reality at field level boots on the ground for a number of years we got frustrated that this was not drawing more and more farmers into transitioning to regenerative agriculture practices and so three years ago we designed and brought to market europe's first certified and multinational carbon payment program for farmers so that we could introduce a new financial incentive for farmers to undergo that transition to take the risk of making that transition, while at the same time enabling the food and agri companies that buy their crops, like Cargill, to access verified, credible information about how their supply chain emissions are systematically being reduced by that transition. And that's what we now do today with more than 500 farmers in our program across France and Belgium and the UK, some 100,000 hectares or more. I'm interested in finding a bit more about your thoughts, both of you, on the growth of regenerative agriculture, why it's increasingly on the agenda and the potential. So, James, what is it for you? I mean, is it around the incentives for farmers that's having to drive this? I think there's there's two areas that we're seeing for the driving force behind this. I think one, whether we look at now at, at food system resilience and, and the need to develop farming practices that help farmers in a new climate and we look at climate change and other factors coming through whether the farms experiencing more weather issues whether that's drought etc as well so farms themselves are looking at the opportunity to change and then i think the other thing is that clearly the, the food supply chain let's like from retail brand are hugely aware of the impact that food has and agricultural production has on climate and water as well and the need to build that and address those systems. So whether it's addressing it through the commitments that we have, be familiar with scope three, one and two commitments. So whether that's greenhouse gas, or as well as I say, other areas that we're increasingly seeing such as water commitments that we have and the need to address that as food producers right through into our, our supply chain as well. Andrew, same question to you then. What are you seeing in terms of the changing drivers around regenerative agriculture and why is it increasingly on the agenda? I would also answer with the two frames of the farmer and the supply chain. Last week, I was at Groundswell in the UK, which is the biggest regenerative agriculture show and conference for farmers. And I've been attending that for a number of years. It's clearly in the ascendancy as a forum for farmers to learn about these kinds of practices. And they're there for the reasons James explained. The cost of production are spiraling under conventional farming systems and farmers need to find ways of producing the same or better yields at lower costs. They're noticing that without more life in their soil, their resilience to drought and flood is lower, and that's hugely problematic and introduces more risk to their system. They know that there are more and more constraints coming on the agrochemicals that they use. And so, again, finding ways to harness nature for the fertility and crop protection that they need is another motivator. So there are plenty of drivers that come together and often a succession within family farming businesses is part of that dynamic as well. So farmers are finding their own way to 
be curious about and adopt the transition. And meanwhile, on the corporate side, as James alluded to, I think we're all very aware of the climate and biodiversity crises that are upon us. But I think increasingly what is shifting is the recognition that food and agri and and beverage companies have quite a significant opportunity within their own supply chains to make a real impact, a positive impact on these global challenges. Whereas previously, we've been thinking perhaps more about broader impact we can have beyond the supply chain. Now it's increasingly understood that with technology and the right data systems and so on, there are opportunities for the value chain to really help farmers undergo that transition for mutual benefit. Scope three, big issue. A lot of people talking about scope three, of course, and a lot of agri-sector businesses are really now thinking about their scope three mission. James, I'm wondering, what are your customers asking of Cargill in terms of their scope three? And to what extent is that driving the Regen Agri agenda? It's hugely driving that agenda. We're looking at how we can address our scope three to meet the extensive commitments that we're seeing within the supply chain. We're very much building that plane as we fly it, so to speak, in terms of what the current guidelines, industry guidelines are. But I think many of us in the supply chain are just like, we've got to get on with this. We want to see impact and we want to help bring that impact through to farmers and the other actors within that supply chain. A great opportunity and we're really committed through actions. And you see that investment now, even by many companies announced pretty much weekly across Europe or globally in investments in Regen Ag within their supply chain. Let's talk a bit about the collaboration you guys are doing together. Andrew, what are you doing with Cargill and why? I'll maybe let James add to the why, but in terms of the business that we're doing together, we're working with farmers in France, in Belgium, in the UK, and these are important sourcing regions for Cargill when it comes to a variety of grains and oil seeds. And so what began some years ago as really a baselining exercise has now evolved positively through a pilot stage to a point where we are working within the supply chains or the supply sheds of Cargill sourcing operations to enable growers, farmers who are producing cereals that go on to be bought and traded by Cargill to evidence that they are reducing the greenhouse gas footprint of those crops systematically year on year, and in a way that is verified through our system in line with the greenhouse gas protocol and therefore also science-based targets initiative as a result. On our side, Soil Capital works with the farmers and indeed with other entities in the supply chain that sit between the farmers and Cargill sourcing operations. So that all of this is done collaboratively in partnership. We engage the growers, we provide them with data-driven insights about where for them on an individual farm basis, the opportunities to adopt new practices may make most sense. And then our monitoring and reporting and verification system with an external auditor provides Cargill with the verified new emission factors for that basket of crops that are being sourced through the system for James and the team to plug into their scope three accounting. You talked about a supply shed. What's a supply shed? So in a context where we're all operating in commoditized value chains, it's obviously not possible to get a fully traceable system of from field to end consumer. And that's the reality for very many crops that we all consume daily, sometimes without knowing it. And so gold standard in particular have driven a definition of supply sheds, which recognize this reality and adopt 
pragmatic but yet robust ways to still define a link between a farmer and a buyer like Cargill in a way that we can be as sure as possible that there is that supply shed link. James, why don't you then pick up a little bit on the why are you doing this? Let's look at why do we work so capital must be over three years ago now that I sat down with Andrew and his colleagues and just really great to see a system that brought together that farm decision making the financials, as well as the carbon piece on the farm. It's no good to just going to a farmer and saying, great, this will reduce your carbon footprint. And they're like, yeah, and it's really, we've got to demonstrate how it really supports their business direction, whether that be profitability, efficiency, what have you on their farm. Real key for us, Soil Capital is a knowledge partner there. And it's not the first credible, verified carbon system down to farm level they developed as well. So really key partners and that say that agronomy piece for us as well. That really sits in why, because we want to demonstrate and show and start engaging in this through our supply chains and through to our customers as well to show how we can work together in partnership to reduce these impacts of greenhouse gases within the supply chain and support them as the big brands in their journey to reduce their scope three commitments as well. Do you think that agricultural value chains then are really committed to making this regenerative agricultural transition? I do. I think the supply chain is very much. And I think farmers are increasingly looking at these things. I think you look at it from clearly a slightly different perspective throughout the supply chain. Farmers are looking at their business, how that's developing, what impacts they have today, whether it's fixed costs coming onto the farm whether it's the changes they're seeing, whether they have to irrigate a crop that they've never had to irrigate before, whether it's the loss of yields, disease pressures, these kind of things they're experiencing. So it is something very much in front of them as farmers, but then clearly at the other end of the chain, it's very much they need to address greenhouse gas in terms of their footprint as well. So just slightly different perspective, but ultimately the strategy and the tool is the same. Andrew, same question to you then. What are you seeing that tells you that agricultural value chains really are committed to making these transitions? That question was for Andrew. Look, I think it's really clear to everyone that whether you're looking at the farmer level or through the value chain, there absolutely is growing interest. You know, you look at the conference agendas that are bringing people together to talk about regenerative agriculture and carbon in agriculture, and it's ballooning. Within that, of course, there are risks of different interpretations, different standards, different levels of commitment. I think that's to be expected. And obviously, we all need to make sure that where that divergence happens, there isn't a risk that the the momentum is taken out of this movement overall. I think what gives me confidence that there are real levels of deep commitment emerging is where, in particular, food and agri companies are looking at this topic and they've done their pilots and so on. And then they're looking for the really rigorous platforms to measure and reward financially the positive externalities that are associated with the transition to regenerative agriculture, which the market itself is also increasingly looking to reward in its own way, whether that's because of reduced risk or new business opportunity created. So it's the players who are coming with a real commercial understanding that there is good business to be done here, done with the right protections and standards and quantification, so that we're not taking shortcuts on that end of things, which I think show me where the real commitment lies. Otherwise, I get a bit worried. I do have to say that it's a bit of a flash in the pan from some that haven't sort of connected those dots together. 
Clearly, there are costs to making these changes. So, James, from Cargo's perspective, you know, who pays? Who's paying for all this change? We're seeing commitment, financial commitments being made by companies, three brands now, as I say, on a, on a weekly basis. You will see dollars, euros, Swiss francs being invested in Regen Ag. So we are seeing that supply chain wanting to invest as we are as well. We've made commitments as well ourselves. So I think there is a lot of momentum. It's not just a higher up the chain, pushing down, expecting a change. It's very much looking at how we can invest, incentivize the farmers for that change and not just on their farm, but even in that knowledge base as well. And, you know, wider issues, trials. So we're seeing increasingly more investment around at the farm level, but also around that to support, to support the process. Perhaps, James, you could give us a little bit of detail exactly what it is you're doing with your suppliers. I know it's the supply shed concept, but what is it that you're doing specifically with them? If you look at a supply chain, so we might work with a food brand that buys wheat gluten from us, let's say, which we make from wheat. So we work in the regions where we source wheat, northern France, for example, with Andrew into Belgium. We can build Regen Ag programs with those farmers and they can be undertaking cover cropping etc again we measure on outcome impact so very much what the farmer can choose to fit into their farming business and then we can follow that it's a verified carbon tonnage greenhouse gas figure that we can then take through the supply chain and provide as an opportunity for that food brand to say they've reduced their greenhouse gas in their supply chain by x or y We could do that purely by just allocating the carbon credits to them, or we could even start doing it into more the life cycle assessment process of the actual carbon footprint of the tonnage of wheat gluten or something like that we provide. So there's different ways that you you can ultimately start looking at that as well. Or in some cases, it's a straight opportunity for the food brand to say they know they're working with farmers to establish and transition farms to regen ag. So then it might be a hectare, acre approach to things. Andrew, I wonder from your perspective at Soil Capital, how are you seeing the Regen Agri movement growing? What are the features of that growth that you're seeing? So again, starting at the farmer level, there's no doubt that interest in adopting regenerative agriculture practices is growing. It's for all the reasons we discussed earlier, but fundamentally, it's an innovation agenda. And it's very exciting and refreshing because of that. Actually, farmers very often report that one of the things that they value about adopting more regenerative agriculture practices is that farming became more interesting for them, solving problems with knowledge and harnessing nature rather than something purchased and input purchased out of a packet. I think the innovation agenda and the need to continue to exchange knowledge and best practice and results of trials and so on will continue to drive growth at the farm level. But I think what's most exciting is the convergence of interest at the farm level and within the value chain. You know, from an innovation point of view, actually, everybody has already identified their self-interest in making this fundamentally new way of, not that new, actually, um, often building on practices we, we quite understand historically. But, but uh, in terms of the market norms, valuing regenerative agriculture practices in a, in a new way, the scene is set for, for bringing those two forces together, the farm level innovation and the market interest. And I think if we can really connect that well, and that's really what Soil Capital is trying to do by providing simple, robust, verifiable quantification of one of the benefits, carbon for now, that ability to transform market practice quite quickly 
is within reach. And of course, that's what we need from everything from a climate and biodiversity crisis point of view through to a farm profitability point of view. We are very motivated by that possibility to bring together the two driving forces of the market-led innovation, the farmers and the value chain there. For you, James, then, thinking in terms of the future, is it this convergence of interest that is the key to driving forward regenerative agriculture? Again, whether across the supply chain or at farm level, we're really seeing more and more interest in that fine. You know, we need to scale and we need to extend that. And that will be more of a challenge. I think we all accept that as we go into touch on different farming approaches, different systems, structures, all these kind of things. We're really setting up a system now. We're seeing things come in into EU and even UK legislation through farm policy, farm support payments, etc., that very much fit into the regen field, ultimately, of agriculture is very supportive there. We're more and more momentum here and more and more momentum right from the bottom. You know, Andrew talks about groundswell. Look, I've never had the opportunity to go but I'm sure Andrew would tell you just how that's developed over time, over the few years. We're seeing similar approaches in France, um, elsewhere as well. We're working with farmers in Turkey in Regen Ag, so really right across the board. Well, it's a very exciting area and one that's clearly going to grow, but it's great to hear that there's so much exciting innovation going on. So James, Edie, Andrew, Voicey, thank you very much indeed. The Future of Plastics and Packaging Forum is coming up on the 11th to the 12th of October. You can still save on your pass if you register today, Friday the 8th. Go to our website for details on all available discounts for plastics and packaging, as well as for our Sustainable Landscapes and Commodities Forum, which will also be in person in Amsterdam. Our website is also the place to go for all the latest analysis and interviews. The podcast will be returning next week as usual with our host, Ian Welsh. It's been a pleasure to cover this week. I've been B. Stevenson. Until next time, goodbye.